0: Hi hey guys and welcome to Tater's Life. Today I'm joined by another care lever, and I'm not going to lie these are one of my favourite episodes to film just because it's so relatable like the, the sort of stuff we talk about. So today I'm joined by Stephen and he's a creative champion for children in care in amongst all of his other things. He's a very very busy man so without further ado let's welcome Stephen to the Tater's Life podcast. Hello Stephen and welcome.
1: Hello Taylor thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much. I've been following your sort of journey now for a little while. And I just was like, you know, we really need to get you on the podcast because you're so open on like all forms of social media about your sort of journey. And I was like, you know, I would really like to hear a bit more. So, tell me a little bit about what you do at the moment.
1: So, my main my main role is really is to direct Element support. So, Elements is a social and emotional mental health support service for children and young people. And essentially, what we're doing is we're supporting children in all different types of settings: schools, colleges, residential homes. You name it, wherever children are, that's where we go. We've got three amazing elementors that work with us as well: Lauren, Laura, and Zara, who are called elementors because I don't like the term staff. So I just decided to get creative with elements and mentors and put it together. So that's Love what we that. got. Yeah.
0: And um, what would a day-to-day sort of day be for you? Like what do you do in your day-to-day basis?
1: Depends where I am. Um, at the moment, I am a mixture between schools, secondary schools, primary schools. I leave a couple of days open for things like keynotes, workshops, conferences. I'm also in the process of writing my own book. I write a lot of creative programmes for elements. So yeah, it, it, it it's a bit of a mishmash of everything at the moment. I don't really particularly do one direct piece of work. Um, I'm also trying to look at writing programs for prisons as well so yeah varied my mind's always racing I've got lots of lots of different ideas
0: you're a very very busy man like sounds like you've got a lot on your plate so now that we've just talked a little bit about what you do and stuff would you mind us going all the way way back in time and just talk about your foster care journey because as another care experienced person I really enjoy sharing like experiences with other people because it makes me feel like less alone and all of this sort of stuff so mm. when did you go into foster care tell me about it
1: i first went into foster care at 6 months of age and i stayed in foster well it wasn't just foster care it was residential care as well um and one attempt of an adoptive family um, so yeah 10 foster homes two care homes and five schools in in a period of sort of six months to 18 years of age the the reason that I went into care was primarily because my my dad was extremely violent towards my mom well my dad was yeah my dad was married to my mom's sister before I was even born so essentially what happened was is my dad tried to stab my mom's sister who he was married to at the time Failed in that attempt, but went to prison for attempted murder. They had children together. uh, They were married. They had children together. And then, when he came out of prison, sort of two and a bit years later, he ended up seeing my mom, which is a very sort of random thing, I suppose. I guess I understand a lot of the judgment, really, from the family on my mom. Like, why would you, why would you get with your sister's ex-husband who tried to kill her that she's got children with? Like, it doesn't make any sense, but. You know, if that hadn't happened, then then I just wouldn't have been born. But naturally, my dad started to do to my mum what he was doing to her sister, his then wife. And then my mum was in and out of hospital. Yeah, pretty badly bust up, I suppose. And reading my paperwork recently, um, you know, because it's taken me a long time to get to read it. I've had it for a long time. I, access, I accessed more care records when I was about 23. but I've never really sat down and read it in detail so I've taken pieces out and I've read different things about how it alludes to my mom, um being a prostitute and my dad selling my mom for money and stuff like that so there's a lot of things that I wasn't told as a child that I'm now reading as an adult and then yeah one day the police knock on the door to say that my dad's killed himself in a car he's basically drove his car into someone's house and killed himself um and my mum was just shell shocked because even though she was involved in a domestic violent relationship, she still depended on him for basic care needs, food, roof over the head, clothes on the back, food on the table, and all that. And uh, obviously, newborn baby and me. So I was I was four months of age when my dad died. So my mum continued to look after me for a couple of months, but she was she was yeah she she was really really struggling. She was only younger self. Um, she was twenty when she had me. So she would have been 22 when my dad passed away. Um, But yeah, struggling, no family, no friends, just no job, just in the world by itself, this newborn baby and trying to make ends meet, I suppose. But um, yeah, I suppose with different men coming in and Birmingham City Social Services decided to remove me from her care at that point. And I was never to return again. Um, We'd have contact, but when we did have contact, it wasn't great because I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to interact with my mom. I I just remember strongly as a child that I detested her. I didn't want to be with her. I said I hated her, I told her that she wasn't my mom. And I didn't realize at that point as a child, how far she was traveling to come and see me um, and how desperately social services were trying to free me for adoption and how she was spending her last pennies to try and see me. you know, this is somebody that could have easily just wiped their hands and just, you know, let their child waft off into the care system. But I have to tell you from, you know, from the day I can remember till today as a 38 year old, she's never stopped trying to be in my life. So I'm probably the only person on the planet and a, and her a sister as well that, that doesn't judge my mom. But yeah, it's a bit of a paradoxical relationship, I guess.
0: I can imagine I'm not gonna lie I wasn't expecting that when you said about your journey like that sounds like a a plot of the EastEnders or something like absolutely crazy like you could not make that up like absolutely crazy and like you know with your mother like trying to get into contact and stuff like I remember as a child not wanting to see my mother as well because as a child you just don't get it you're you could because they're meant to be your mother like they're meant to protect you and stuff and they put you in this environment where maybe you don't feel safe and you feel rejected and stuff like you do point the blame you do and that's only sort of natural and when you went into um foster care when you were six months of age were you with that placement until you were like a toddler or was it just like back and forth in different places for a little while
1: no that yeah that's the interesting thing because um between uh six months and 11 months so within yeah within like a five month period I'd lived with, I think it was something like six foster placements. So out of those ten foster placements, six of them, I was it, it, the way it would have worked is I would have lived with a different family every month from six months to um to eleven months old. So I wasn't even a year old at that stage. I'd already been with six six foster placements. So, but the longest placement was when I was um yeah from eleven months, uh, I was with a lady called Pat. And I was with her until I was seven years of age. So that was my longest, my longest place. And, you know, Pat was somebody that had fostered for many, many years in that sort of five, six year period. I must have lived with hundreds of children because she didn't she didn't just foster. She she would have children on respite. So she'd have children that would come and stop for two, three days. Then they'd go. There'd be another child that would stop for a couple of months. Then they'd go. So while I was there for that sort of six year period, there were children that were constantly coming in, going out, coming in, going out. So I've got pictures of me with children. Like, I'm, I think I think I would have lived with about a hundred odd like, children, easy, just in that period of time.
0: Did you understand why they were coming in and out? Like, did you understand what was going on?
1: No, I was just, uh, I suppose i just seen them as brothers and sisters. Yeah, yeah. The, the mindset of me at that age, wouldn't have really understood. Why that many children? For me, I was just quite grateful to have the company because obviously I don't have siblings. You know, I'd, I'd make friends at school, so, you know, your friends would come back for dinner and things. But, you know, in terms of living with children, it just became a normality that, you know, I would often find myself as a child helping Pat with some of the babies as well. Even as a four year old child, whether it was in the garden and she'd say, Oh, Stephen, just watch Lizzie for me for a moment. And I'd be, you know, because I, I was, as a child, I was extremely caring, like extremely protective. So there's photos of me with a lot of the foster children with my arm around them, or I'm holding them, or I'm sat in the pushchair by them with my arms crossed, making sure that nobody comes like, to mess with them. Like I was like fiercely protective as a child of any children, I guess. So... I think that was, that was always, I suppose, in me. And I guess it's probably led me to my calling today to do what I do with, with children, I guess. But um, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's me. I was that's definitely yeah.
0: going to say, I was definitely going to say that I think that even those characteristics at a super young age, they've just like festered their way into your life now. Like it is what you're meant to do. You're meant to like help children, like, and like you could see that from like a super duper young age and like how was school because i speak to a lot of care experienced young people and some of them they had really positive experiences and everything like that like for myself didn't hate school wasn't bullied too bad because i found it as a safe place because what was going on at home was way worse than anything that could have happened at school so How was school for you?
1: In school in its entirety, I'd I'd gone to five different schools. So my first primary school, I remember I absolutely loved it. I loved all the after school clubs. I had a lot of friends. I was very popular. I was popular more, I think, because of my ethnicity. So I went to a very white school. Um, I say very white. So when you look at my, I've got a photo of me when I was in the primary school. I'm like the only child that's got colour all the other children are white but I never felt I mean there were there there was a couple of children in the older year groups that would laugh at my hair or they'd pull my hair or stuff like that because I had an afro so my mum wouldn't allow me to have my hair cut in care so I had I never had my first haircut until I was about nine years of age because my mum wouldn't allow me to do it so um yeah but I think that was a bit of a feature of mine so I think it was one of those people found it interesting I suppose that I am the odd one out, I guess. And I think on that note, from an early age, particularly in school, I was struggling with identity in terms of, you know, some people were saying I was half-caste, some people were saying I was white, uh, black, more white, more black. So it became quite confusing for me. And obviously living with Pat, Pat was a white, older female, um, so I never really had any sort of role models or anybody to look up to that looked like me um, so that was quite confusing. But yeah, the early part of school was fine. And then when that uh home it didn't break down, the reason why it, it finished was because my social worker had said the plan was always to look for what was called my forever family. Um, and they found this forever family, and it turned out to be quite an abusive two years for me. Um, but then obviously I moved school and I went to a different school, and that was quite sad for me because Obviously, I would got used to all of those friends in that school and then going to a totally new school. I think I went there in year four. So from nursery all the way up to place, you know, year one, two and three, I was with that bunch of children and then I was taken from there to a different school. And then I was taken from there to a different school and then I went to two different secondary schools. So what we do know about children is that school for whatever background school, children come from school is a play it's a hub of friendship isn't it it's where you formulate friends it's where you make friends it's where you learn social skills and things like that now because mine was being repeatedly um reset I wasn't able to build on those social skills I wasn't able to build that trust I wasn't able to go through some of those pitfalls so when it came to friendships I was very guarded so by the time I ended up in sort of like my last secondary school for example my mindset was already don't bother making friends because that you're just going to lose them anyway you're going to get moved and you're going to get moved so i was that kid in the playground that would rather be by himself and kick the ball around um i was a bit more of a target for bullies in that respect because i was a loner i was by myself so it just made sense for bullies to 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 utilize me as someone to, to pick on that kind of made sense to me um but yeah, what what I learned was is I learned to become my own best friend. So from a very early age, I had an invisible friend called John. Um, I can't remember when John came into my life. I just know was from a very, very early age when I was with Pat. And one day Pat was in the kitchen. I think I was about three or four, must have been about four years of age. And uh, she said that we're going to the shop in a bit. I need to get ready. I was just on the swing in the play in, in the garden. And um, I said to her, can John come? she says who's John and I said oh John's my friend and she just played along with it she went yeah yeah that's fine John can come so that was like a validation from Pat because I remember that memory quite strongly it was almost like she was she knew that I was talking about like an invisible friend or something but she she validated that feeling for me that it was okay whereas if she'd said something like don't be silly or something like that it would have crushed that in that moment for me so that's I love Pat for that, and uh, yeah, John. John basically my invisible friend stayed with me uh, till I was like early teens. And the only reason I stopped talking to John was because I felt that it was silly, and I'd be I'd be seen as mad by my friends for like talking to myself. <laughs> so um, I was. I'd be walking down the road, like I literally had my Nokia like four zero two, my old phone, and I'd literally be talking to John on the phone, pretending I was on the phone, just in case. That's how. I had to I had to outwardly speak it I couldn't I couldn't hold the thoughts in my head it was too much so I had to outwardly speak it so I used that entity of John to speak to um when I needed to rationalize my thoughts and even till this day I speak I speak outwardly um I speak like very very fluently to myself um I'm very I, I can I have that ability to self-criticize but not self-sabotage. Yeah. So I don't I don't damage myself like that. I'll have a strong word with myself and say, you know, you need you could have dealt with that situation a lot better. And I'll be like, yeah, you're right, you know, I really could have. Maybe not. So if you was a fly on the wall in my room, you would think I was mad. You would you would gen you would genuinely think I was mad. But I don't I don't view it as mad. I I very much view it as having an intimate relationship with myself. And I think I think I look around in the world and I think a lot of the uh a lot of the issues that i think people have is that they don't like the sound of their own voice in terms of self-conversation and self-reflection whereas i'd be lost without it I, i guess
0: yeah absolutely i feel like everybody deals with things separately like one common way of like coping with things is to write things down and like for you it's to talk outwardly to yourself so like i you're saying i would probably think you were mad but I would just probably just like listening in on it, to be honest. Like, it's just, I'm I'm not nosy, but I just like to listen in on conversations and stuff. And like, I talk to myself as well, but like, it's not in like the same way that you do. It's more like, oh, what do you think I should do about this? And then I will repeat what I know I want, but I'll just repeat it out loud. And then I'll be like, yeah, okay. And it, people probably do think that's a little bit mad but like when you've sort of grown up and you've had to be like your your own best friend I guess and like I don't think my sister or mine so I I was I wasn't lucky in the care system like at all but I was lucky enough to have my sister with me and when I first went to university and she stayed home like in the area like where we grew up it was extremely difficult to be like apart because all we've ever known through everything is how to deal with things together like I remember she would ring me and stuff and she would be like I- I'm struggling to make friends because she couldn't do it without me or I couldn't do it without hers like it's weird how you like rely on your like each other or yourself with different situations so when you say you were bullied and stuff like did people take you seriously because I know like from my sort of experience growing up like people just didn't take me seriously at all I could say like you know somebody like punched me in the stomach or something and then it would be like my fault do you know what I mean
1: Mm, yeah absolutely yeah um I was very cheeky in school, so I knew I knew not to talk to my teachers about any bullying that I was receiving because I believe, and it, may, it might have been different if I'd said something to them, but I believe because I was already branded as the cheeky, delinquent uh, kid that doesn't concentrate, kid that doesn't pay attention, kid that gets distracted too easily, then there was no point in me even going to any of these people to explain a situation I was in, because I just felt that they'd already labelled me already. And I think, you know, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because obviously when I'm supporting young people in school, um, I understand why they don't want to talk about certain issues, because the, the general narrative that plays out in school is, if you're being bullied, come and talk to someone. That's usually the general, you know, and I have to call bullshit on that. I really do have to call bullshit on it because I remember like a, a significant bullying situation. Not in prime prime primary bullying, I think, is um I think it's necessary. Like, I think everybody, every kid should get bullied in primary school. I really do. And I know it sounds really counterproductive and some of your listeners might think, oh my God, Steve, that sounds a bit... But I do because I think it really creates a resilience in you for when you do get to high school. Or when I don't mean bullied to the point where you're being hurt, but you know, when you're getting called names, where you're getting picked on, I think sometimes it's actually a good thing to have some of those things because when you get older, you can kind of relate to it or build resilience. But when I got to high school... um. It was year, year eight. so I was in my last high school from year eight to year 11. and um, there was a lad called Leon, and he, he was just he was just an angry child, like he was on reflection. I don't know what was happening for him outside of school, but he seemed to be out he seemed to be, bring all of his pain into school. And he would just identify whoever he thought was weak. And then he'd just release all of that onto them. So he obviously identified that in me. I don't know what it was about me. I never bothered him. I never said nothing to him. But he identified me as somebody that he could he could bully. Um, so it started off as like, you know, punches, digs, uh, dead legs and stuff. And then it turned into like, there was a little phase in the school where it was, um, I think it was called choke out or something like that. Yeah. Um, where basically you'd get someone in a headlock and you'd pull them over your back and then you'd hold them in that position until they lost consciousness. That was that was the aim of it. Um, so when they say kids are today, like, it's like, stuff we were doing as kids was madness. We are bringing fireworks into school and stuff. I don't see kids doing that in school today. Um, so, like, when Leon was doing that to me, like, because of the children were seeing it, in my head... I couldn't show the other children around that I was taking it personally. I couldn't start to cry. I couldn't start to say, get off me. I just felt like I had to play the role. Like it was a, it was a role that you had to play and had to get on with it. You know, you just, you just got to laugh it off basically. And then your mates would have to say, oh, you're right. You're right. You're like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Cause you don't want to seem like, you know, you've taken it personal or anything. But that one, it wasn't stopping, do you know what I'm saying? Like, it was going on and on. And this went on, like, literally for a couple of years Um, to the point where, like, I was walking home crying um, because I'd built all that emotion up in school, didn't want to release it. And I'd I'd release it on the way home, just crying. And one day someone was walking past me and said, like, are you, are you OK? And I said, yeah. Um, Didn't want to talk to them about it. Uh, I had a mate in school called Adam, who he kind of knew a little bit about. He says, why don't you speak to, to teachers? The point for me was, is right, and this is why I understand a lot of children in school, if they are being bullied, why they won't say anything. If I take that information to the school, or to the teachers, then they have to, they, they, it's not a choice, they have to mention it to that child's parents. They have to, I mean, what, what else do you expect them to do, with that information, just be like, oh, thanks for that, Steve, we're just going to keep it to ourselves. No, they have to inform Leon's parents at some stage that he's bullying, we don't have to mention any names, Stephen, but we just need to let his parents know. So when his parents find out that there's an issue, what do the parents do then? They sit Leon down and they say, we've had a phone call from the school that you've been bullying someone. They haven't told us who it is, but this needs to stop or blah, 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 blah. Or they don't even say nothing to the child. So then all that happens then is Leon comes back into school. You've been telling people blah, 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 blah. And then it increases and it increases and it increases. And as a child, I was aware of that that truth so I thought you know what don't say nothing just keep it to yourself you can't fight him back because he's going to knock you out he's a bigger kid than you you can't tell your mates because what are they going to do there's no point in telling the staff at the home because then they'd have to tell the teachers and the te- there's no point in telling the teachers I don't have a Stephen that comes into the school to see me and even if I did he'd have to tell the teachers yeah. so this is something that you're going to have to deal with by yourself and I dealt with it by myself and I left school. And because I left school with no GCSEs, I had to go to Sutton college to do a um, uh, topic that I wasn't interested in, like leisure and tourism. So I was one of like, the dumb kids at the school. So I rock up at certain, ro- certain college and guess who's on the same course as me?
0: Oh, do not tell me, Leon.
1: <laughs> yeah, Leon's in the classroom. Like I'm like, oh, no, great. And he's kind of looked at me and he's like, you know, he does that like head up thing. Like, yeah, I'm like, oh, God. So I sit down. And I literally walked back, the, the the class thing that, it was like, um, what do you call it, introduction to college and that. Get up, go to walk out the door. And now we really have to appreciate in this situation is my spider senses are already hyper alert to Leon being around me. So even walking out of that college room, I was very much aware that there's a potential that he might try and get me in a headlock again. And that's exactly what happened. So we're walking out of the room and I just I just kind of sensed he was about to put his arm around my neck and the arm comes around my neck. And just before he gets a grip and he would have expected this. And I did it. I didn't even know I was doing it. He put his arm around my neck and I just grabbed his wrist and I pulled it back around his back and I pushed it up his back nearly probably to the point of breaking his arm. And I pushed him up against the wall and I said to him. This fucking stops now. I let him go. I walked off and I didn't look back. And he said to me, you weren't saying nothing in school, you pussy. So I, w- I looked around at him and I said, Leon, we're not in school anymore. And then I walked off and he never, ever touched me again.
0: Oh, my gosh. I can't believe you put up with it for that long. But I'm so proud that you actually found that in you to just be like, you know what? I am actually going to end this myself because nobody else is going to do it for me and it I found it actually quite not interesting but like maybe a little interesting how you mentioned how you didn't have any GCSEs and stuff because I think and this is like my personal sort sort of TED talk if you know what I mean I just Mm -hmm. like children in a foster care who, who are going through a lot at home education doesn't necessarily mean much to them in the sense that they've already got so much going on right now that school is an inconvenience to a lot of people because they literally they don't know where they're going to sleep that night they don't know so much they've got that fear of rejection all the time like their foster carers could say listen we want you out you know tonight which happened to me actually where i was doing my GCSEs and my foster carers were like oh we can't have you anymore kick me out that night like Absolutely like mental to think that a lot a lot of young people go through this and school isn't necessarily the number one priority.
1: It's not the number one priority. And you also have to remember the foundations that the education system's built on. If you go back far enough, the education system's built on that white-picketed four plus family 2.0 holidays. It were, this, this, the education system was never really designed for children in care and there have been certain changes over the years that have happened in the education system but one of the changes that haven't that haven't occurred is the the parallel between a child that is moving around multiple homes in the care system that's trying to also navigate the education system So the education system is usually, particularly in Britain, it's a results focused business, isn't it? You know, we want high attainment, we want high attendance, we want good behaviour, we want bums on seats um, and we want great um, uh, Ofsted results and all of that. It doesn't really cater for those children. So what schools end up doing is they put up with those children for a period of time. In the back of their minds, they know that they're going to exclude them, they know that they're going to isolate them or basically move them on somewhere else. But they have to be seen to be trying. I think in that gap between what they would call trying, there is a negligence of um, apathy, I suppose. I'll talk about drip by drip, day by day, and there's three parts of it, apathy, sympathy, and empathy. And there's just a heavy reliance on apathy Well. Is it really going to cause the head teacher of that school less sleep if Dylan gets kicked out? Probably not. Probably not, because Dylan is a thorn in his teacher's side. It's easier if we remove Dylan and then just get on with our day to day. Um, But what happens is it's not just about Dylan, then, is it, it? It's about a nucleus of those children. That might not even be in care. It might just be that some of these children are just really struggling to to, um, apply themselves academically because, let's face it, not every child's designed, well, I'd say a lot of children aren't designed for the school system. Um, I've seen this wonderful quotation, and I think it would be like kryptonite to any school leader, and it's brilliant. If you get it off, I'll I'll have to show you one day. But there's basically a teacher that sat behind a desk on this sort of uh, cartoon picture. And in, so- in front of the teacher, you've got four animals. I don't know if you've seen it, but you've got a, you've got a, an elephant, you've got a snake, you've got a fish and you've got a monkey. And the teacher behind the desk just says to all of them, I want you to all complete the same task. I want you to all climb that tree behind you. So then the um, the snake says, well, I can like wrap myself up a little bit, but there's a chance I might fall off and I might hurt myself because I might not be able to cling on. The elephant says, I can get my trunk up there, but I, I definitely can't climb it, sir. I can, I can get my I can get a little bit up there. The monkey says, not a problem, sir. Like I'm an A-star student. I can go up there. I'm built for these trees. And then the fish says, Are you taking the piss? So what we have in our classrooms are a bunch of fish, elephants, monkeys, and snakes, but the school system has only been set up for the monkeys. Um, the ones that can climb up and down the trees it's not set up for the rest of them so they'll put up with the elephants do you know what i'm saying they'll put up with the ones that and they'll put up with the snakes in there like the every now and again children but when you got a bunch of fishes in your classroom that are just saying i can't do this no matter how you explain it to me no matter how you try and sit me down and put me on report and do all of this stuff i'm gonna struggle from year seven to year 11 it's just gonna be a car crash to be quite honest with you um and then you are gonna end up moving me school to school and i just think to myself well where's the love you know what i'm saying where's the compassion in all of that and that's the part i struggle with 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 going into schools knowing that a lot of them are just being set up to fail
0: yeah i get that and like there's something about like you know this is for teachers especially it's like a three no eight to three job that's it that's it they don't care about us after and like i found that a lot with social workers and stuff like oh five o'clock time to go home and i'm just like i was literally just kicked out half an hour ago i have nowhere to live do you know what i mean so it's just like people do treat it as a job and like when you're in that situation as a young person you feel like a job you feel absolutely you feel like you're just in the way of everybody else's life and like that fear of rejection you know it festers itself into different areas of your life and stuff and like you've been in foster care out of foster care for so many years but I've only been out of the care system now for just gone four years and it's exactly the same so I'm I'm actually 22 at the moment so when you mentioned about your mother losing her partner and like having a newborn child I was like I'm only I'm 22 and I would never I couldn't that would be so difficult so like I do I do have sympathy for your mum in that respect she was so young to go through through what she went through
1: absolutely 100% but you know you you're you're, very, you're you're a lot fresher to the care system than than I am so but it's interesting how you say not a lot's changed um and I do I think people sometimes refer to the care system as being broken um I don't I used to think the care system was broken but now I think it's cracked um If something's broken, then it means it's obsolete, like it's not working at all. But actually, we know that for some children in the care system, it does work for them. They have their lives have been saved. They are being fed. They are in education. They are thriving. They are doing well. So that's not a broken system. We just know that for a very large majority of children that are in the system, They are being pushed from pillar to post. They're not being respected. They are being neglected. They're not having their thoughts and feelings taken on board. Uh, No one's listening, you know. And that for me is that, well, it's cracked then, isn't it? Because it's not working for all of the children. It's not designed to work for all of the children. Um, I think sometimes, and you might have this as well, is that if you find out that someone's been in care, it's almost like they've had the exact same experience of everybody else that's been in care. Like we've all been branded with the same brush. And it's like, everybody has their own fingerprint on the care system. Everyone has their own unique experience. Um, And I think that needs to be spoken about a bit more as well, that it's, it's a unique experience being in care. It's not, you know, generic.
0: I think as well, in the care system, when you say you're in foster care, or you grew up in foster care, the immediate response is, I'm so sorry, because people know that a system that just doesn't work for many people. And you're not going to be in foster care for any old reason. Like something bad must have happened in your past for you to be in the system in the first place.
1: Absolutely, and, and also that for some children, they sign themselves into care. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not always the case that children have been taken into care, it's that they've voluntarily put themselves into care um, because they know that being at home is just not safe for them or their siblings or whoever that, that they're home with. So yeah, you're right. It's not a foregone conclusion as to why children go into foster care, um, whether that's short term, uh, long term, teenage fostering. Um, you know, I think it's yeah, it's definitely something to be mindful of. Uh, it's not, it's this idea that every child is there for some sort of bad reason and there's different care orders as well isn't there you know it might be an interim care order it might be an accommodated care order it might be a full care order uh, it might be a special guardianship order you know there's, there's just lots of different um, lots of different orders I suppose so but these, these are things that a lot of people aren't really aware of either. Um, no
0: absolutely uh, and I think uh, I think more people just need to be educated on this sort of thing because mm. being in care isn't an easy thing to go through like going from like my own experiences like I reflect back and I'm just like you know I could never live a moment in foster care again like it was just just so much and like you know with being bullied and everything on top of that that's so much for like a young person to go through and like Mm. when you mentioned earlier about how you couldn't go home to say what that you were being bullied and all of this stuff. Do you think that's because when you were being abused as a child, you knew that if you told anybody about that, that you would be in a lot of trouble when you got home sort of thing? Because um, from my own experiences, I was abused really bad from when I was 6 to 12. And I didn't really know that it was wrong like at the time, because I was so young. But when I was in school, I was like, if anybody asked, like, where I got my booze from, or whatever, I knew immediately to say I fell. And it wasn't because somebody told me that I can't tell anybody, I just know that like, I would be in more trouble. If mm. people found out or like that my abuser knew that I told somebody, do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I suppose my 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 immediate answer is is no I didn't make that correlation um between me being bullied and uh not telling someone out of fear um of getting into trouble uh it was really out of fear of what if Leon finds out that he knows that I've told someone that he's bullying me that it's just going to make my situation worse um and I guess taking into account your story there as well it is really important to remember that I don't know what the statistics are I don't know what the percentage is but I know it's a high high percentage particularly for children that are in care that they carry those secrets with them to the grave you know they there's there's so many cases where I've worked I mean I've been working with Children in care for the past 17 years um so 13 years residential i've seen every behavior family support done work in prison so i've seen pretty much what what there's to be seen and to be heard um and i know that there's been, been a couple of disclosures that have been made to me off the cuff like just off you know and it usually happens on a friday some for some unknown reason um where If I hadn't had noticed something about that young person, then they would never have told me. So I'll give you an example. Uh, So when I was a family support worker, uh, quite new to it, I didn't really know. I was excited to be a family support worker because I just spent 13 years working in residential care and I was working in a high school. And we had these six-week programs that we were doing with the young people. And I just thought six weeks isn't long enough to do good work. But, you know, my uh, supervisor said to me at the time, well, six weeks is better than nothing. I said, OK. Uh, so anyway, I get this referral of this 15-year-old, uh, year 10 uh, female student. And uh, it just literally said that, um, I won't say her full name, but her name begins with a G. Uh, it said that G is suffering with exam anxiety and um could do with some strategies to help and I was like okay well it's not really a lot to go off but we'll see so I'm sat down in the room G walks in immediately I could see that she was a little bit apprehensive a little bit nervous just in her body language So she sits down and puts her bag down by her side and I I introduced myself. Uh my name's Stephen. I'm from Family Support. I've read your referral. It says you're here for exam anxiety. Um, you know, do you wanna tell me a bit about yourself? And she just sat there, looking at the floor, biting her nails, shaking her knee. Uh and I said, um, I said, uh, I know it can be really difficult, can't it? You know, you you don't know me. You, you know it can be really hard to sort of talk and things so uh, I said why don't you just tell me something that you're interested in like what you get up to didn't say anything it's like, okay uh I said um has anybody sort of explained like why you're here or like why you've come to see me didn't say anything I was like, <laughs> I didn't have it. at this point uh Taylor I was just like I'm exhausted in trying to think of what to say here yeah. and then it just came into my mind just tell her what you see just 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 say what you see because you've exhausted everything else now <laughs> so I said to her um I've noticed since you walked into the room your knee's been shaking and you've been biting your nails and I just left it and as soon as I said that she stopped just stopped shaking her knee and I stopped biting her nails just stopped and I kind of, I kind of felt like I had her attention at that point, and I said, um, I said, I don't know if I'm right. Could be totally wrong. Something's telling me that you've got something to say, but you don't know how to say it. And she looked at me, and she said, "Can I go now?" I said, "What do you mean, back to class? Like you want to?" She went, "Yeah." I was like, uh, "Yeah, that's yeah, that's fine." And I said, like, "I'll be here next week." And then she, boom, walked out the door, gone. And I sat there and I thought to myself, what on earth did I just say to her? I was like, oh, my God, I've done something wrong. Anyway, a teacher walks in and she says to me, oh, how was the session with G? I was like, well, it was all right. I mean, she didn't really. Oh, yeah, she doesn't really talk much. She doesn't open up. She's really quiet, but she'll open up over time. She'll get used to you. I was like, "Okay." (laughs) Next week comes G walks into the room. Different persona, different energy about her. It was almost like she was just waiting to get into that room and she sits down and she says, you know, last week when you said I was holding on to something, but I don't know how to talk about it. I was like, yeah, she went, I have got something to say, but it's hard to say. And I said, that's cool. Like sometimes it's easier to write it down or to draw it or, you know, she went, I'll try writing it. So she got a pen. I gave her a piece of paper and a pen. She started to try and write it, and then her hand started to shake a little bit. And I said, just take your time, there's, there's no rush. And she went, I'll just tell you. I went, okay. She said, when I was 10, I used to go over to my nan's house because my mum worked late and I used to stop at my nan's. And quite often, my nan's best friend had her son there who was 16 at the time. And uh, we used to hang out and stuff. And one of the days, he asked me if I wanted to play a board game so i went upstairs with him and then he locked the door and then he raped me i was like you know you just you're just not expecting it it's like yeah. bang like wow it's like okay and uh we sat for a moment of silence and i said to her um am i the only person you've told like am i the first person she went yeah she said And this comes on to what we were saying earlier. She said to me, I couldn't tell my mom because I didn't want my nan to get into trouble. I couldn't tell my nan because I didn't want her friend to get into trouble. And I couldn't go to the police because time had gone on too much. They wouldn't believe me anyway because it would be my word against his. So I just kept it. And then I said to her, I'm curious. Firstly, I think you're very brave for telling me, but I'm very curious to find out why now? Like, So you've been holding on to this for five years since you were 10. You're 15 now. So this happened to you when you were 10. He was 16 at the time. So he would be like 21, something like that. And she said to me, it's because you noticed my knee shaking and biting my nails. She says, I only started to do that after that had happened. And you're the first person to notice it.
0: Oh my I God. felt
1: like I needed to tell you. So it's just, it's just to show you and to anybody that's listening that curiosity as its own entity, I talk, I talk about the five building blocks of connection, patience, presence, um, curiosity, creativity, and authenticity. If you operate with those five building blocks on a daily basis in your practice with any child, like eventually you're going to build a connection. How strong that connection is going to be, we don't know. But if you operate on those five building blocks, those are five building blocks that I understand as a child for everybody that I've ever met, but also the past 17 years of every child, thousands of children I've been with, that every child I've ever supported. Those are the five building blocks that I've come to the consensus of that work. And curiosity is so powerful. Just starting off a sentence by saying, I've noticed, I'm curious, it can open up so many doors for them. Because at that point, they might just turn around to you and say, don't know what you're on about. And that's fine. It's like, okay, I just thought I'd let you know that I was curious about why you do this. And then two weeks later, they might walk back and say, oh, Taylor, do you know when you said to me why I keep um, pulling my hair? Uh, You you were curious about why I keep pulling my hair out uh, and getting clumps of hair in my hand. It's because I remember that's what my mom used to do when I was a child. Yeah, and literally she, that she it, whoever I'm talking about. Let's say it was Lizzie. Lizzie may never have told anybody that in her life. Let's say Lizzie's twelve years of age, and she's never told even a therapist, foster carers, anybody. They've asked Lizzie, "Why do you keep pulling your hair out?" What do I? Never said it, but because you just said in a roundabout way. I'm curious to find out. I've noticed you pull your hair and you left it. You didn't ask any questions. Remember that statement, it's not a question. It's not, why are you pulling your hair? It's, I'm curious about you pulling your hair. I've noticed you pull your hair and you've left it. And you've left it on Liz's doorstep to do with whatever she wants to do with it. And she's pondered on it. And then she's thought, Taylor's the only person that's never really asked me a direct question. But because she's curious and knows this i might bring it back to her or she might not and mm-hmm. then one day you stood in the kitchen or you're at her wherever you meet uh, lizzie and she says do you remember when you said about me pulling my hair oh yeah that was two weeks ago yeah, yeah yeah it's because my mom used to do it when i was a child and then that opens up a new conversation that lizzie is now ready to have with you but because we don't show or implement enough curiosity with our children usually we want to find out what's happening you know, what happened? What's going to happen? How can I fill out my report? We're not very present. So that's why I'm saying those five building blocks of connection, when you've got presence, and you've got curiosity, mixed with creativity, and you're being patient, and being authentic at the same time, if you get um, a linear, is it a linear, I'm trying to th- work out the word when they're in sync with each other. Yeah. I'm, I'm telling you, it's it's a force, but Again, it's not really implemented too much. Usually, there's no patience. No, there is. There isn't much curiosity. Uh, there isn't much creativity. People aren't authentic because they're using their job title as a smokescreen. Um, and yeah, there's there's um, there isn't just there just isn't enough of of those five building blocks. I guess.
0: No, absolutely. And like I remember on my personal experience. I remember, um, I had therapy. Like counseling sessions when I was about 14 and when I was 14 I wasn't ready for counseling it's only now I'm older I've dealt with it on my own terms that I'm like you know what maybe I, I do need counseling but when you're 14 and it's like forced upon you and you're mm-hmm. not ready the outcome's very different as well I think mm-hmm. um you have to be emotionally ready to say like Okay, I'm happy to talk about it now. So yeah, and I'm actually like, just amazed by the work that you do. I think it's just absolutely essential to the future of the care system to ensure that people are trained in this sort of way of thinking, because again, there's such like a black and white sort of way about going about things, but what about this gray patch?
1: I've just recently started working with Telford and Wrekin 16 plus leaving care team. Mm. And they wanted to find out a little bit more about my own experiences when I was leaving care and how that might empower them today. One of the one of the things that I've designed here, what would the 16 year old Stephen tell you if he was sitting in front of you? So I had to do I had to reflect quite a lot in terms of some of the th- some of, the, some of the avenues I was going down, some of the people that I was mixing with, some of the mindsets that I had, what I was doing, how I was behaving, I had to really break myself down as the 16-year-old, and then I came out with some different things, and I even put them in like, in inverted commas, to sort of say, this is exactly what 16-year-old Stephen would have been thinking, not necessarily what he would have said to you, oh, I see. um yeah and I, and they found it they found it really intriguing
0: And you know I'm so inspired by your story and like about what you do now and like how you use your experiences to benefit the future of new the new generation the next generation like that's like such a huge thing because i don't think care leavers should be silent like we've been through so much and be patient be present be curious be creative and be authentic is genuinely like the best building blocks ever and i want to thank you so much for being on the podcast but i do have one more question and yes would you give younger Stephen now reflecting back on your journey would you tell him to you know there's a there's a light at the end of the tunnel or what have you like what what advice would you give yourself
1: um have you heard the little Stephen song
0: I haven't heard the little Stephen song
1: (laughs) have you not
0: I need to listen to this
1: uh, basically I'll create a song called little Stephen, and it answers the question that you just asked in terms of what I would go back and say. So it's me going back in a time machine to be with myself for two, three minutes to talk to him. Oh. Um, and yeah, in a nutshell, the song kind of does it in more detail, which I'll send to you. Um, but yeah, I suppose in a nutshell, it's to say to him that none of, even, even though none of this is your fault, Everything that you're experiencing is going to be necessary for you to become as strong as you're going to become. So, just as much as you don't like your vegetables and you don't want to eat that and you'd rather have a plate full of sweets, and one day you said to Pat, you'd rather have sweets for dinner, and she came and got you sweets, and you came in from school and you had a plate full of sweets, and you thought you was the man eating the sweets, and then an hour later you were telling her your tummy hurts and you wanted to have your dinner. It's a great lesson that she taught me that day. Um, even though it seems like it's really bad and dark and dismal for you um, it's all preparing you for you to be that superhero that you're going to turn into that that powerful person so um, yeah just just know that you're going to be in a far far better place when when you get older
0: yeah absolutely i cannot wait to listen to this song like it sounds so wholesome and when you are in that place when you're younger like a dark dark place to think that there's a life where you don't feel like this almost Mm. feels impossible so Mm. like that's exactly what i would say to my younger self like you're stronger than you think like Mm to be able to go through all of that day in day out and still survive and be a better person because of it is like a huge Mm -hmm. thing. And I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. Like I really cannot wait for this episode to go out and get it all out in the world. You know what I mean?
1: absolutely no thank you for having me on I really appreciate it no,
0: um so yeah and I'm,
1: I'm glad that you know you've decided to turn some of your pain into purpose as well um in doing what you're doing with the podcast so everybody has a day one right
0: absolutely oh that's <laughs> so cute yeah everybody does have a day one and I genuinely am so I'm like so thankful and like thank you to our listeners as well if you've stuck around this long that really does mean a lot to myself And to any other care experienced person. So thank you to my listeners and thank you to Stephen.